and good evening. Thank you for joining us, our fellow lovers of love, on this excursion through the stream of consciousness down the river of tranquility and on towards the lake of love. Yeah. And it still doesn't work in my head because there's one, two less steps. There should be one more step in that whole journey thing. But I keep screwing it up, so I shortened it to something I could actually get. <laughs> anyway, so thank you all for joining us. I'm sorry I was not quite ready, apparently. There it goes. For the show here in my topic list. It's either over there or it's on here. So it's an interesting show tonight. We are having a discussion about uh, sexual histories. Actually, not necessarily about sexual histories, about talking about sexual history. So it's talking about, we're discussing, discussing sexual histories. We're not actually discussing our sexual, sexual histories. Yeah. It's specifically, it's, it's about the topic of discussing sexual histories. But, you know, before we get into that, just before the show, a couple hours before the show, a friend of mine, I was talking to a friend of mine, making some uh, arrangements for kind of the things we do this week. And his, uh, Father is passing away, and you know these are the uh, type of things you can't control in life. You know, and especially as you get older, it happens more and more often where people you know have people going through difficult times, whether it's illness or actually passing away. And you know, a long life doesn't blunt. No. The pain of the moment. I mean, yeah, it can help you get through it. That okay, you know. But well, we all know that we're going to lose our parents in our lifetime. We all know this from a young age. Yeah. But I don't know. It's just been such a difficult year on that for a lot of people this last year. It's kind of in our face every day. And and we forget that, you know, regular things still happen to people. People still old age, you know, ill health, regular ill health still happens. And we've kind of almost become, I don't want to say numb to it because it's not really true. No. But, but it feels like it. I feel like as a society, we become numb to it. We don't take the time to, huh. to actually honor the passing anymore. You know? And it's not that the media needs to do it. It's we need to do it. You know? So for all of us, for all of everybody who's dealing with that, you know, we're, we're with you. You know, love gets us through. The love you have for your loved ones, the love they have for you, that's what you want to focus on. That's what you try to remember. You know, we're not perfect. None of us are. We all have our ups and downs. But at the end of the day, that's what counts. Who loves you? Forgiveness, acceptance, empathy. That's what love is. All this other stuff is just stuff can be worked through. I think there's a there's value to that. I don't know. So I was hoping to have a little bit better attitude today. <laughs> so I'll try to pick up my you know, it was only a couple hours before showtime, you know these things. I'm I'm a yeah. I'm a bit of a softy. So but before we get too much started, you can please do the follow, like, subscribe thing. We would appreciate it. You can find us on Facebook at The Late Night Love and at Late Night Love everywhere else. You can also find us, just find us at our website at latenightlove.us or latenightlove.us. That's another way to think about it. I like it. Late night love us instead of dot us. Late night love us. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of 
If you think of it that way, put the dot in there. Late night, love us. Oh, love us, please. Love us, please. Love me. Sorry. <laughs> you are so goofy. <laughs> I'm goofy. All right. You said you're ready for tonight's show. Yes, I am. Because we've got... I did my research. You, you, you did your research and... Yes. Why did that come up? Um, so, all right, hold on. There we go. I don't know. A website I didn't type in came up on my browser. <laughs> so, we've got... Uh, first of all, we were talking about talking about sexual histories. And this is just interesting conversation we were having. Um the other day. Well, I guess it wasn't up the other day now. It was a while. It was last, almost last week. It was just after the last week's show, wasn't it? We, I think so, yeah. We were just kind of chatting about that we're not all that interested in discussing sexual histories at this point. Well, I am and I'm not. I'm very torn. <laughs> I want to know you know, it's like you have these secrets, but I don't want to know because I know some things and I like compare myself. Well, see, because that's the problem with, with knowing too much, right? You want to know about sexual histories, you know, because STDs and all that kind of thing. So there's a point you want to know about, but how much do you really want to know? It becomes an interesting question. How many actual details? Because, again, you know, the pictures in people's heads can run wild. And you might not be that, you know, at that stage of your sexuality anymore. You know, you might have been in a much more or less adventurous stage of your sexuality. You know, we all ebb and flow throughout the course of our lives. We explore things and we find things we do like for a while. And then, eh, they're not interesting anymore. And, you know... These things happen, right? It's just life is like that sometimes. You know, you're not always the same way throughout life. That's true. And so how much of, you know, sexual history is relevant? Especially if you're in a monogamous relationship and, you know, you have one type of sexuality when you're footloose and fancy free and another type when you're in a monogamous relationship. So they're not actually comparable. Bisexual people have that particular, I won't say it's a problem, have that particular issue as how do you understand that? Well, um, I've dated women. I, when I was single, I explored and I would not, I would choose one or the other. I would date women for a while, then I'd date men for a while. I wouldn't mix and match. And because the creatures are so different, but uh, for a long-term relationship, I prefer men. Yeah, but, but that's actually my point. In, in a long-term relationship, your sexuality is can be, it's can be, depending upon the period of your life, be different, right? If you're just looking for, you know, a couple months of summer fling, then it, maybe it doesn't matter the sexuality of the person involved. But if you're looking for a long-term relationship, then maybe it does. And so how much of that sexual history do you relate to? The, how much of the details? We're not talking about, yes, generically speaking, this is the type of activity I have done in the past. But how much of the details do you actually need to know or even want to know? And that's a, you know, How open-minded and accepting are we all generally actually when it comes down to it? <laughs> well, some people are into that thing. Yeah, some people, but again, it kind of depends, and it depends where you are. And it, also, when you get older, into your 40s, 50s, and 60s, how much, there's, 
there has to be some kind of filter at some point, right? Unless you miss Mr. and Mrs. Goody Two Shoes and haven't done very much in your life. Well, there's, you know, <laughs> yeah, when you get older, there's a, kind of a lot to discuss. Do you really want to sit down and give a story? I mean, come on. I'm not even that interested in my sexual history, but, you know, do I really have to go to it? <laughs> I really, I mean, I will so, if you want. But. Okay, so what do you share? You share your number. I don't know. It's, some people don't even bother keeping a number. You know, it's it's like, do you? I've, I didn't keep a number. I don't know. I don't notch my belt. I have, you know. Oh, you know, ballpark. No, I really don't. But that's because of the, I don't know, unremembered weekends. But that's a whole nother issue. <laughs> <laughs> that, my friend, is a whole nother issue. But, but that's the point, you know, unremembered weekends. How do you discuss those? How do you deal with all that kind of thing? And we also have to be clear, there's lots of people who don't have a uh, long, sordid sexual history. There's plenty of people out there who, you know, very lucky to have some sexual history to discuss. And maybe it's a bit embarrassing to say, I don't have much of a sexual history to discuss. Especially early on. Maybe it's harder for men, I suppose, than women, but you know, it still exists. That, that's attractive, though. Is it? Yeah. If you're a 50-year-old woman, do you really want to go through the hassle of have uh, learning, teaching somebody and going through the, that really 40, 50-year-old woman? Do you really want somebody who has no idea what they're doing? Some people like that. Well, yeah, some people, but I'm talking <laughs> the generically. That's all nice and fun, at, you know, in your 20s. That's great. Well, it depends. How long did those relationships last? Did they last for two years? Sure, then you have some experience. So what's the problem? Yeah, I have, know. Do you have some experience getting to know a woman? Do you know how to get to know a woman? Well, then you clearly don't. There's... There's a growing number of 30-year-old people who don't know how to relate with the opposite sex or their own sex. They don't know how to sexually relate to people. Let's put it that way. To be all-encompassing, because this is true. There's a growing number of people who have been socially isolated by their own choice, their own social incompetence, or social awkwardness, whatever it may be. What happens? You know, you're essentially having your, what used to happen in your late teens and 20s are happening in your 30s. And how do you discuss that? I think that's a harder question than trying to figure out how to discuss your sordid sexual history. Because if you're with someone, you know, two people who have long sexual histories, well, you're going to have to accept that you know, I have a long sexual history. You have a long sexual history. Therefore, it's easier to accept the fact that, you know, people have long sexual histories. But what do you get when one person has a long, complicated sexual history and one person has essentially none? Or what if their only sexual history is paid? How do you discuss that? Very carefully. No, I have no problem with sex work, but it's a hard thing to discuss. Yes, it is a hard thing to discuss. Especially if it was, you know, just to get you through some lonely times and not your actual job or something. I think it'd probably be easier to discuss it as your job than it would be to discuss it as a customer. It's easier to admit you're a porn actress than it is to, or actor than it is to admit that you're a reviewer.
It is. And how do we discuss all these things in life? How do you discuss these things with your partner? No one tells us. And we're not actually helping. We're not telling anybody how to do it either. <laughs> but the thing is, what we are doing is that there is no way to do it. You just have to find some way to start doing it. And you do it with kindness and compassion. And you figure out, okay, how much do you actually really need to want to know? How much does your internal brain run away with its own motion pictures? And if you have a problem with that, then you probably don't want to know more than you need to. You know? But I think the question is, find out, figure out how much you really need to know before you start having that question, answering that question. And work backwards from there. Because there is a point, there is somewhat you need to know, right? There is a need to know. There are needs to know. There also are needs to share. There are parts of your sexuality that you need to share, right? Otherwise, you don't feel complete. Even if you don't participate in them, you may need to share that, that this was part of me, this is part of me, in order to feel whole, in order to feel accepted. So there is a need to know and there is a need to share. Those are the two parts of the conversation. What do I need to know from them and what do I need to share with them? You know, and you have to understand what both of those are for yourself. And then give your partner time to figure that out for themselves. A lot of times we were one person is ready to have the conversation, you dump it on the other person and you don't give them time to get ready to have the conversation. If you're in a long-term relationship, it can be a long-term conversation. Or a short one. All you get is okay. <laughs> well, the first time, it's all might you get. Okay, can I think about it? Let me consider it. Let me contemplate. They might not have contemplated it in this kind of formula, in this kind of formula, right? I hadn't thought about that. They might not know what they need to share, what they need. They, they may not know... You may need to work through it. And, you know, it's an opportunity to work through it together. But don't don't try to have the conversation faster than it can naturally organically happen. You know, plant seeds, you water it every now and again, and essentially something beautiful may grow from it. You may get weeds, but, you know, some weeds are going to smoke. You deal with it. You know, you, you work with what you get, right? But that's the part of, you know, building a relationship. I think. Anyway. Yeah. And so, no, you're not going to get five-point plans from us. That's not how we work. <laughs> <laughs> if you take these ten steps, no, no, no. An emotional response. No. And you well, and it's okay to have an emotional response, but it's also okay for that emotional response to pass by and to have your real response. Because they're not always the same thing. Your emotional response and your real response are not always the same thing. I think we need to be more careful about that. In our personal lives and how we interact with society and everything else. You know, we so many of us seem to be oh, what's the word I'm looking for? in love with our own emotions, shall we say, that we forget that emotions can lead us astray. That there's a reason we have emotions and logic. You honor both of them, and that's how you get up with something solid and real. It's not one or the other, it's both. It's both. Because we are humans. We are emotional creatures. We make decisions for emotional reasons. Oftentimes they're bad decisions because we didn't logic our way through them and find out the better pathway. Because, you know, being pure logic, also ignoring the emotion side of humans doesn't help either because we're emotional creatures. So you need to honor both. And that's the trick. And getting through the discussion of uh, 
sexual histories. One, it's not a short-term discussion. It's a long-term discussion. And two, honor both the logic and the emotions of it. And you'll all, you do that with love, empathy, and understanding, and you'll manage. You'll manage. And you'll manage your way. Not mine. Not anybody else's. Do it your way. Okay, so this was an interesting one that that you uh, came up with. You sent us earlier in the week. But I do have one caveat right off the top that I wanted to discuss. What? This article we used is focused on women when, quite frankly, I think in the modern world, I don't think it matters what gender you are or not. I think this is a universal problem, a universal issue. And if we ever want to get past these issues of you know, gender dis, uh, disconnection, shall we say, the divide between genders and divide between our cultures, we have to start dealing with these things as universal issues. And I get it. I don't, I don't want to be upset at the person who writes it. They write from their perspective, and I respect it. It's just I, it's as a general rule for the rest of us. When we talk about this, we should think about it as a universal issue, not a gender issue. That's, that's all. I understand the author watched from their writes from their perspective, and and I honor that. I'm not. I'm just saying, from my perspective, I would like them to make a discussion from a universal perspective. That's all. Because otherwise, than that, it's it's actually fairly good. I don't really have a disagreement. I just think in the modern age, we should use, you know. You're right. Because these things are not no longer women's issues, they're human issues. Okay. So what do we got on this? It's called In Between Parenting is the Latest Identity Christ Women Are Negotiating. So we would say... Uh, Actually, the point they're talking about is working from home. So I can see your point. I mean, a lot of men work from home. Yeah, a lot of everybody's working from home. Yeah. And, and, and now with, you know, issues with the schools and issues with, you know, high working and mandates. And we won't discuss good or badness of those things. But, you know, the shift where men were no longer being the main breadwinner, it already happened. It's already happening. In ba- in major cities, women make more money than men. The average woman makes more money than the average man. It's already kind of starting to flip. Yeah, but... <sighs> and then we do this now, we're all working from home. Well, Many people are working from home. Many people are doing their own thing now. They're starting their own businesses. They're they're working two or three. I don't even want to say part-time jobs because jobs is the wrong way to describe, you know, they're actually running their own businesses. They just don't think of it that way. You know, they have three or four clients that they work for. And they think they're working for, they're working, they have three or four employers, but they really have three or four clients. And they just have, you know, there's not that mental shift yet that I'm in control of my own schedule. I am an independent contractor. I'm not an employee. But more and more people are becoming independent contractors or becoming their own bosses, becoming their own employers. And it's the same, it's the same issues. You know, clients are actually harder to service than bosses in many ways. You know, you can tell your boss I'm off the clock. How do you tell your client you're off the clock? Your boss wants you on the clock. You're gonna to have to pay your time and a half. How do you tell your client? You know, drawing the boundaries with your clients is a different. It's a whole different task. And then you have boundaries and your life balance as well. You have to navigate. Okay, and it's not a gender issue, but sorry, I interrupted. We're not a slight rant. Oh, it's a little tangent. <laughs> <laughs> What? But the issue she was talking about was uh, 
basically dividing your attention between your work responsibilities and your household responsibilities and feeling torn and, and the balancing act that you have to do every day. Yeah. And not feeling like you're there for either one. Yeah. But how is that any different than the farmer was back in the day? Except you don't do it by Zoom meetings. You have to decide when you're going into town or whatever, go to the market. I don't think it's that much different. I just think we got we became disconnected from that for a little while. That is most of normal life. We've all had to do it. I've never not had to do it in my life. You know, sometimes it changes focus, but when you have kids, you never you're always feeling torn about that work-life balance, whether you're in the house or not. You know, how do you take your kids to a doctor's appointment when your when your office hours and the doctor's office hours are the same? You know, it's the same choices. It's, it's the same issues. The issues haven't changed, but how we frame them as if we frame them as a problem, we're going to see them as a problem. There's a nasty habit, and I'm not disagreeing. I'm going to, again, maybe it's just my mindset because, you know, like I said, I was probably in a bit doomy and gloomy mindset when I get to show today. So that's why I told everybody at the start. <laughs> just to kind of beware that I may end up slipping into this negative Nelly mindset thing. Because they actually make good points on this. You know, because she's saying she's distracted by the kids and the stuff while she's in a Zoom meeting. But that's just... I bet you you're not as distracted as you think. I mean, we sit here and record this in, um, in my home studio. I record a TV show in my home studio, which we're supposed to be back into the regular studio in December. Oh, it's December now. Yeah, yeah. It's like I said, I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> but, um, you know, and I like being in studio, so I can understand it, but it's not because of the lack of the distractions or, or anything else. It's just there's a difference of being in a real TV studio as there is making do in your home studio. Oh, Yeah. And what's funny is I can get almost as high quality here as I can there. Almost. If I tried a little harder, I could. But there's something different about the three cameras, the big thing, the control room over there, an actual floor director, and all I have to do is work, focus on being a, a TV host rather than being the TV host, clicking buttons, running, <laughs> making sure the stream is working checking for comments, you know, all the various things that that we do. And so there is a difference. I understand that there's a difference. You're, you know, in a Zoom meeting, you're not just working, right? You're also managing this program, this Zoom program, checking the Zoom chat thing. You've got to make sure the dog and the dog comes. Maybe the guy who the comes to fix the heater or check on your, you know, your HVAC system rings the doorbell just as you start your meeting, because of course they do. And, <laughs> you know, all this is very true. And, it's, and in that sense, it's easier to work at an office. You don't have to deal with those things. Except you do. They're just different. The janitor comes in to empty the trash cans. The the water guy is, is comes in and drops the water bottle all over the place. The printer's not printing. You know, Jane is missing, so you've got her work to do that day. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's all the same. It's just different. We're used to the other distractions. We're used to the, to the work distraction. We're not used to the child distractions. And we do feel a little more, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Responsible. 
for our children than we do for our job. Well, we should, anyway. <laughs> so when you hear your child out there and you're trying to listen to your Zoom meeting, you hear your children outside playing, and you get one of those screams that's halfway between a laugh and halfway between a cry, and you normally you just peek your head out the window to see which one it is, and you can't really do that. You know, <laughs> you know, so you wait for the next step to see if it's something you actually need to go, you know, yeah, these are difficult things. So Bubby's going to step out. I'm going to keep yakking. So we will be right. Uh, so she'll be right back. We've got, on the second half of the show, we've got a user's guide to good therapy. And we're not actually going to go to the, we're not going to run over the seven criteria. We'll, we may do it quickly. We'll spend a few minutes doing that. And then we've got questions. Oh, do we have some questions? We're actually short questions, but I think they're going to be longer answers this week. And speaking of questions, if you'd like to ask, have send us questions, you can do that at, wait, wait, where is my mouse? There it is. That dear at lovey at late night love dot us. Man, my mouth isn't working today. And we've got you can find me at Jazzrec on Twitter, as you can see on the screen. You can find us at Late Night Love on your favorite podcast networks. And if you can't find us, let me know and I'll get us listed on there. And you can Always find us at Late Night Love on the various social media networks. All right, as the lovey comes back. And we are back. All right, lovey. So, was there anything that I went completely off the rails on that topic? So, is there anything else you wanted to finish before we move on? No, I don't. <laughs> or are you just afraid that I'm just going to go negative Nelly on the rest of it anyway? So, what the heck? No, I thought you covered it very well. You brought up a lot of very uh, interesting issues. But there is... One more issue that I'd actually want to cover, because there is the emotion behind it. We're sitting here talking about the logic and emotion, you know, balancing logic and emotion. But that's essentially what they're talking about in the article, is how do you balance that emotion? Because it's real. They're talking about the guilt. And I, I, I suspect women have more of an issue with this than men do, about feeling guilty. I just, it's not that men don't, I just think women feel it more. Men feel guilty, trust me, we do, about working too much and whatnot. But society tamps that down on us because that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to. And so it kind of tamps down that feeling of guilt because it balances out with, well, I feel guilty about it, but it's what society tells me I'm supposed to do. So, you know, and so that tamps down that guilt a little. You know, whether it's good or bad or indifferent, I don't know, but it's, I think it's does. Yeah, and society tells us we're always supposed to be there. And society tells women they're supposed to be the nurturing kind and, and you know homemaker type. And you know what's that do if you're on the opposite end? What's that do if you're a man who wants to be a homemaker and you're a woman who wants to be a career person, right? Now you say, oh well, it's great they find together and man's a homemaker, woman's a... but society doesn't like that when they see it. For some reason, it's perfectly fine the other way around, but society doesn't like it when it's you're just two people who who match, create a good match, create a good coupling. You know, a lot of times that's what it is. Some a high powered person needs to find a home body, a home person to it's that creates the balance, and you know, two people who are kind of. You know, average people, most people get together and have to get together, get together, get together and have successful relationships. It's the out of it's the ones that have, you know, a high powered person and a you know, someone who kind of wants a career and a home life, but 
you know, it's just kind of a quasi successful, both of them. Not they're both a person who wants a really successful home life or someone who wants a really successful. Anyway, I think I've gone off the rails again. Is balance. The balance in kind of maintaining the emotion. But speaking, honoring the emotion, maintaining the emotion, honoring the emotion. Man, I'm struggling today. All right, so let's skip to the seven criteria for good therapy real quick. Because we actually experienced it this So there is actually a trick. I don't want to say a trick to get therapy. But that is remembering that the therapy is for you, not for your therapist. You pay them. And so the, the, the relationship with your therapy I'm less concerned about the style of your therapist is that the therapist actually works for you. You know, they talk Freudian therapy and all this kind of different therapist styles. Now, someone who you connect with on an on a emotional level. Therapy is not, is, it's, there's a, it has to be a, it's almost an instinctive trust for it to be successful. Now I've been lucky. I've had the same therapist for a long time now. And I can't get a therapist to save my life. Yeah, no, that's Kaiser. That's the problem with Kaiser. They're getting in trouble for that again. I get a, I get a counselor for about a year, and then that's it. They move on, new program. They start doing something else, and they start with a new counselor. Yeah, so you just getting a therapist, let alone getting to choose uh, one you like. But what you talk about is, it's not just the, the, you know, the style of therapy. It's things like how they dress, their, the way their office is laid out, all the various uh, subconscious things that make you, com make you comfortable. My therapist reminds me of a grandma. I think this is probably one of the reasons why I'm comfortable talking to her. Kindly grandma, you know, I, I suspect that it's one of the reasons why I'm more comfortable talking to her than I would be saying a jolly old man. <laughs> I suspect that there's something to it. Now, at least initially, you know, now it's, we have a long working relationship, but at the start to get through that hard part, you know, maybe. I don't know. I've never actually thought about it until I actually <laughs> read the article. But there might be some subconscious factors at play. You know? Maybe someone reminds you of your grandma, so therefore you're more willing to be open to having discussions that you wouldn't be. It's an interesting concept. Think about it. Individuality, uniqueness of the therapist. So you can you've got consistency. Um, especially if they have, if you're dealing with, you know, things like PTSD, anxiety, bipolar, someone you know is going to be consistent. I suppose, suppose, even though I'm not sure what consistent means in terms of therapy. So, but at least someone who you, Consistent and then adaptability. You're, you're starting these people start confusing themselves again. I mean, yes, you want them to be adaptable. You don't want them to be well. To adaptability mind. in the therapy. It says a therapist who has a big toolbox and isn't afraid to use it is crucial. Yeah, you don't want someone who's essentially has a one trick pony. You don't want someone who's phoned it in. It's got one style. They got one things, and you've got to fit there. I like the ones who have a book. <laughs> First, you start out by reading that book. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. My, my therapist has a book. Yeah, yeah, but did she require it at your first meeting? No. No, not at all. Didn't have to buy a book or nothing. No, didn't even give them. No. I have one somewhere, but I haven't actually read it. It's like getting along with your adult children, but I get along with my adult children. So, anyway. Creativity. 
Yeah, creativity. Someone who can think outside the box. Someone who can... Humanity. That's, for mine, someone, again, who shares your vision of humanity. You're not necessarily has an idea carbon copy of your of humanity or the you know the solutions to your humanity may be different you know the paths to the end game may be different but the, the basic shared humanity is similar you know your your shared values on human rights are somewhat in the same ballpark you know the paths to them may be different maybe vastly different but at least you know you you both want relatively the same world. Humility, someone who's able to admit the wrong, don't know, you know, willing to listen to you and learn. But, you know, what's actually interesting about that, all those are the same thing you want out of any relationship. Any functional relationship has all of those in it. Whether it's therapy, partner, business partner, friend. Those are traits of a good relationship. And that's what good therapy is. It's a good relationship. So, remember that and honor that. You'll have a good therapy experience. Well, good advice. And you can work on having a good therapy experience because I also want to remind everybody that therapy is often painful. <laughs> well, yes, it's a growth process and growth is often painful. It's often painful, you know, it, it, especially those initial six, ten, whatever it is, those initial six months, ten meetings, whatever, you know, those, those first growth steps because you got to break habits before you can form new ones you've got to you've got to break thought processes it's thought habits you're breaking not personal habits it's thought habits you're trying to break that my friend <laughs> nothing can hurt you more than your own brain just remember that and so you know and your therapist is there to help you not hurt yourself that's their job in the process but it's still going to hurt It's still going to be painful, but you're not. But long term, it's going to be worth it. Worth it. So, I just always tell people about that. It's not a magic pill. You don't go to therapy and you feel better the next day. It's not how it works. I often feel crappier the next day. Well, not anymore, but I used to. You know, you have a hard some some of these therapy sessions are hard. They're difficult, and then they, they can carry on for the next day. They can be triggering to use a word I dislike. You know, but sometimes you have to trigger that, hit that trigger a few times before you can work your way through it. And that is the ultimate goal, is learning how to work your way through it, not avoiding it. Avoiding it is where you, what got you into therapy. <laughs> I'll almost guarantee it. <laughs> it's learning, you're learning how to deal with it. You're learning how to become stronger in the face of it. You're not learning how to avoid triggers. You're not learning how to avoid your pain. You're learning how to deal with your pain. Learning how to become stronger in the face of it. That's your goal. Alright, so let's hit these questions while we got 15 minutes because we've I've been yakking my butt off today. Alright. My boss is in divorce and has been bringing his four-year-old twins into the office due to child care issues. He goes into meetings, leaves the kids in his office, and they run around disrupting people trying to work. How would you handle it? Okay. That's a difficult one because, A, it's your boss. And, you know, depending upon your boss, is he like the owner of the company? If he's the owner of the company, there's really not much you can do. There's probably not much you should do. Now, if you can... You might want to let them know that, you know, these, when you go into these meetings, these kids kind of run wild. Is there something we can do? But on the plus side, he 
He's recently divorced. He's working his way through some problems and he's the boss. He knows it's disruptive. He's not stupid. We don't have anything to, that's, there's no other options right now. And in the comments where I got this, I pulled this off of a quorum. Someone suggested, so, you know, you might want to be a bit more empathetic because now when you have a family issue, he's more likely to be sympathetic to your issues. He's sitting here dealing with them himself. So if he was, you know, you may want to remember that this may work to your advantage in the future and you may want to be quiet. I mean, I get that, you know, four-year-old children running around an office can be annoying. I actually do understand that. <laughs> I've raised five kids, and I do know. <laughs> but, I don't know. There's just not much you can do if it's your boss. I mean, I suppose if your boss has a boss, but it doesn't sound like your boss has a boss. Sounds like your boss is the boss. And if your boss is the boss, all you're going to do if you if you approach it in anything but the most tactful way possible is get yourself on the doghouse list. And you become a problem when he's got enough problems. I'm not saying offering to help or anything. I'm not saying to do that. I'm just saying to don't make it your problem if it doesn't have to be. He'll solve it on his own. These things are generally temporary while they're looking for childcare options. They're trying to figure it out. It's not easy to find childcare for four-year-old twins. And single parents, single fathers are a rare thing. They don't have much support. The, the world is built for single mothers. All the support networks we have in place are designed for single, single men can access them, but it's awkward and it's difficult. They're not designed for it. it you know, just, and right, rightfully so, you know, you design it for the mass. You know, you don't design it for the exception, but it's becoming less and less an exception. And until we start accepting that, you know, it's us for us to be compassionate with the men doing that just the same way as it had been if it had been a single mother all of a sudden taking care of two twins by herself. Yeah, you'd want us to show her compassion, show him some compassion. They'll work through it. Try and let it work through it. If it doesn't go, if it continues on for a couple weeks, you know, bring up a hey, is there something we can do while you're in? Just make it while you're in the meeting. Don't make it about bringing the kids into the office. Just say while you're in meetings, is what is there something we can do about, about them running around and causing problems? You know, don't make it about the whole big issue. Make it about the actual meeting. All right, what's next? The teenagers go further than just kissing in cars in the fifties and sixties. Well, there's teenagers, right? There's <laughs> there's teenagers, and the car was just you know it's like behind the barn or in the haystack or whatever it was in the generations previous. It just means they were more mobile. That's all it means. <laughs> Their teenagers are still teenagers. But, so yes, teenagers went farther in the back of cars. It's not. Yeah, what was that thing they they'd say they'd go watch the submarine races? I don't know. In happy days, yeah, go up to the lake, make out. Mm. Uh huh. Yeah, no, humans are still humans. They're not different. Back Steam up the windows. They weren't more. You know, they weren't more prudish back then. We, we think they were, but they weren't. Now, the, you know, before antibiotics, you had to be much more careful. 
they mentioned antibiotics and you know STDs, the whole nine yards. You could kill yourself sleeping around in the 1800s previously. I mean, you can do it today, don't get me wrong, but it was much easier to do it back then. And so that actually did put a damper. That's the real reason that, you know, religions and whatnot didn't want people sleeping around. Didn't really care about the morality of it. It's that you could wipe out a pulp freaking town. You could wipe out a whole culture, a whole civilization by having a loose moral. That's what the whole Sodom and Gomorrah story is really about. <laughs> now, we, don't, we have antibiotics now, so we can put loose and fancy free and all that, but still. Yeah. But yes. Teenagers. Teenagers are always teenagers. You're we're literally programmed at that age to to, to want to. So it's just <laughs> nature programmed us, man. There's nothing we can do about it except try to balance the emotion and logic. Alright, what do you got? How do I react to my twenty two year old son who doesn't buy gifts or even a card for family birthdays or mother's day? Good luck. Well, he's 22. He probably doesn't have money. The, there is that. Yeah. The choice is that he's 22. He likely doesn't have money. And, you know, so have a little compassion on that case. Now, if he does have money and isn't doing it, maybe he just doesn't celebrate holidays. There's lots of people who don't celebrate holidays. I'm not a particular fan of celebrating holidays. You buy me a birthday card? Yeah. Sometimes I get flowers. But I don't do it for the holidays. Oh, no. No. So, eh, he may just stop it. And here's the thing. If he's not buying things, he's not going to mind if you don't buy him presents. If it's for because he doesn't celebrate holidays, he's not going to mind. Because he doesn't celebrate holidays. He's, he's accepting them because it gives you pleasure to give him presents. Right? That's why you give someone gifts. You don't give it because you expect something in return. You give a gift because it gives you pleasure to give a gift. That's why you give a gift. If you give a gift expecting a gift in return, it's not a gift. It's an exchange. <laughs> I give you something, you give me something. You know, it's like going to the store. I give you $5, you give me a gallon of milk, right? That's not a gift. It's an exchange. A gift is, here's something from me to you, just because it makes me feel good, because I like you. Don't expect anything in return. That's a gift. And it's wonderful if you get something in return. It's great. But if you're expecting it, you're not giving gifts. I want you to think about that one. If you expect something in return for it, you're not giving gifts. Yeah. Now, if he doesn't have money, if he's choosing to eat rather than buy people gifts, it, wouldn't you prefer that? Would you prefer him not be hungry than to have a card and a flower for, for Christmas? What's your actual priorities? Now, I get it if he's just not caring, if it's not a choice about holidays, and it's not an economic necessity, then I can understand <coughs> somewhat. But my Excuse guess, me. it's one or the other. And at 22, it's most likely he doesn't have the money. So there's that. Okay, next question. At what point did you realize it was the right time to leave your job? When we locked the door and I couldn't get in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just being funny on that one. Um, well, there's no set 
things. It's an instinct. You know when it's time. One, if the, they're doing things that you can't morally stand by, then it's time to leave. If they treat employees or customers or the environment or whatever in ways that you can't morally stand, it's time to move on. It just is. You know, there's no reason to destroy your your own humanity for a, for a paycheck. You know, one of those things is going to live with you longer and your humanity is going to stand by you. So humanity won't feed you. Yes, it will. Your lack of humanity will is one that will, in the long term, will not feed you. It will not feed your soul. Your soul is actually more important than your stomach. Well, to a point. <laughs> but you'll know. You'll know the signs. You just It's one of those things you know. If other people are leaving, it's probably time to jump ship. That's a good sign. You know, high up middle management, people are starting to bail. That's a good sign to leave. If they're behaving in ways that are not unethical, it's time to leave. If cutbacks are happening, it may be time to look for an extra exit door. Or if you've just Dread with all your fiber of your being getting up and going to that place every day. It's time to consider leaving. You know, it may not even be nobody's fault. You just may be tired of it. And But that'll eat you up too. That'll give you an ulcer. <laughs> so, you know, you have to think of your mental and physical health as well as your economic health. So, all right. Next one. My boss asked me to write a resignation when I was unable to come to work due to anxiety. So I did, but started with per your request. He wants the per your request taken out. Should I rewrite it? No, you shouldn't write it in the first place. Let them fire you. Make them fire you because then it preserves your, your unemployment claim. What he's trying to do is say you, you left willingly. So therefore you're not a, um, eligible for unemployment and you're not leaving willingly. Don't let them do it. Anxiety is, is a, is actually, they are required to give you a reasonable accommodation. They, they are, it's a disability. And so he's trying to get you to resign. So he doesn't have not on the hook for either dealing with giving you reasonable accommodations or paying your unemployment. So don't sign anything, make them fire you. And if he does go the unemployment route and talk to a, a I, you may even want to talk to an employment lawyer because there may be a, a case of not giving you reasonable accommodations without knowing your employment history, you know, but as someone who deals with anxiety, it's easy. That's often easier to just find someone who recognizes who can, you know, an employer who is uh, empathetic to your anxiety. They exist. You'll be much happier working for them than someone who doesn't want you working for them. But you know, the path you take is for your your decision. All right, one last one. One last one. Can a father keep his biological daughter three months with him permanently if the mother is against it and wants to give her up for adoption? I want both of them to stay with me, but she is reluctant. Um, yes, a biological father can keep his daughter, even if the mother wants to give it up for adoption. Sadly, you may have to fight for it. You would think that if the wants to give it up for an adoption, then it would just default to go to the father. But sometimes it doesn't work like that. Now, luckily, it's already born three months. And that's actually easier to do at, before they're born, if that decision is done before birth. Now that they're actually after birth, it's easier for a father to, rather than adoption. And the courts are, the courts are screwy. The same woman that wants to give it up for adoption 
you know, if she decides that she wants to keep them now, just because you don't, you want them. Yeah, the courts are weird. Courts are weird to to male parents, single male parents. They just are. It's getting better, but they just are. So you, you're behind an eight ball if she wants to fight. At least you having custody versus her. If she just wants to put up her hands, the reason she probably, the reason she, someone in this position likely wants to give up for adoption instead of having you keep it so they're not on the hook for child support. So if you give the child up for adoption, she doesn't have to pay any child support. You keep the child, she's on the hook for child support. That's how these things work. And would I like to say someone's that crass enough to, to give up? Well, it happens all the time. Sadly. You know. Why else would you care? Unless the person's a, you know, not someone you want taking care of a child. But, you know, I can't assume that. So, assuming this is someone who should, you know, who's regularly competent about taking care of a child... You don't have to be extra competent. Just have to be competent as everybody else. <laughs> you know, and quite frankly, most of us aren't very competent in our first child. So you don't have to be that competent. You just have to be not a predator, essentially. Right? That's essentially the level of not having your child taken from you. Right? That's yeah. that's the standard. You have to be not neglectful or a pre or not a predator, right? That's kind of the, the standard. Anything other than that, well, you still get to be a parent. Man or woman or either, both, either. You know, the, it's not, you're the parent, you're the parent. And you give, you know, and the point of giving up a parent, giving up a child for adoption so you're no longer the parent. She no longer wants to be the parent. And so you would think her walking away and leaving you with the child would be a, the default. And it should be. But my guess is that child support thing is getting in the way. So, sadly. But not all of us are made out to be parents. Some of us should have made that choice beforehand. You know, but once... You know, there comes a point of no return and you're a parent and you're a parent, whether you want to be or not. And adoption is a way out, I suppose. But, you know, and if you know you shouldn't be a parent, and I suppose it is it's a way out of causing harm. Yeah. But when you have someone who wants to take care of that child, when you have a parent who wants to take care of that child, then just walk away. Most men won't actually ask for child support. They'll be happy to just not have to fight the court system. They won't go to child support because they don't want to deal with the court system because they'll lose. So you can, women can literally walk away far easier than a man can. So I'm not giving much of a good answer on this, but other than yes, you can. If but if she tries to fight you, it's going to be a be a fight. But you know what? It's your it's your daughter. Yeah. Yes. I never say fight because fighting only hurts people and breaks things. But there are times when it might be necessary. So try to avoid it. Try to deal with it. You know, say, I won't tell her you won't go for child support. You know, try to keep your promise. You know, the government may, hey, if you go for like government assistance, they'll 
have their own say about that, but do your best. Maintain your calm. This is the one where your your emotions are going to have to feed your logic to get you through this. Because if you become emotional in, in dealing with it, it's where you get this where men get in problems. They get emotional. This is so you're gonna have to become logical and deal with it step by step logic. You know? Go see a lawyer. Do all the things that you tell a woman to do in this situation. Do all that. Because it shouldn't matter. Your gender doesn't matter. You know, we started talking about how the genders don't matter in the modern world, and the genders shouldn't matter in the modern world. It's your child. They're not interested in raising it. You are. You know, the advice we give to women is to, you know, get a lawyer, go to court, <laughs> get your child support, and go on with your life. What do we tell men? <laughs> go to, go to, get a lawyer, go to court, and get your custody. Don't worry about child support. Why is it? Why is the advice different? Don't know. Should it be that way? No, but it is. And that was not a very happy-go-lucky show today. I was hoping for a bit more of a happy show today. It is what it is. It is what it is. You know, some days kids aren't always happy, now are they? But we got through it. We talked about everything we wanted to talk about. I don't know if I gave good advice or good conversation or not. It's up for you all to decide. But for me and Lovey for this week, well, thank you for joining us to um, love everybody. Good night.